So there's uh, some uh, folks here. If you're here for the first time or first time in a long time, I'd love to be able to meet you afterwards. I'm Dave. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're glad you're here. We are in now week four of our January series on um, coming home, bringing back the wanderer. And today we are looking at the story of the prodigal son. So if you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, we'll be starting at verse 11. So the Gospel of Luke, 15, 11 through 24. I'm also going to read verse 32. I'm not going to read the entire parable. Listen carefully, as always, this is the God's word. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And then verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the gospel of Luke this morning to learn more about the heart of Christ for prodigal people. Lord, we ask you this morning to give us the grace to see the forgiveness of Christ for the wanderer and for ourselves. In this most famous of passages, You give us words of faith and repentance, pictures of tears, both glad and sad, words to rekindle our hope, and most of all, words about God's love for people who think it's too little and too late to come home. So as always, open our ears to hear and our eyes to cry, our hearts to break and our minds to believe, and give us the desire to learn from you and be changed this morning. 
And so we pray, speak through the parable of the prodigal son. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. One of the few things in ministry that I'm proud of is that Bob and Tammy are still married. You don't know them, but Bob and Tammy are the couple from the first wedding I ever officiated. And I usually see a nice wedding picture on Facebook every year on their anniversary, and this is just a small piece of her story. I met Tammy at the hospital. Back in the early 90s, the hospital in my town had no chaplains. And so it was the practice there to invite the local pastors to serve as volunteer chaplains when various needs arose. And one time they asked me to check in on this young woman who was coming out of a very broken home. And so I visited with her and prayed with her, and I gave her a New Testament. A few days later, I went back to visit, see how she was doing. And she was sitting up in the hospital bed and reading the New Testament that I'd given her. And so I asked her what she was reading. And she said, I found this amazing story about this spoiled brat who takes his father's money and runs away. He does the whole party scene and blows all the money, loses all his friends, and ends up shoveling pig slop. So he goes home, hat in hand, and begs his father to take him back, which he totally doesn't deserve. But his father does it. Can you believe that? His father actually takes him back. That's amazing. I wish I had a father like that. Anyway, it's a great story. Have you ever read that story? I'm pretty sure I was not crying. And I said, yes, that's a great story. Actually, it's a pretty famous story. It's called The Parable of the Prodigal Son, and I'm glad you found it. And she said, yeah, it's pretty cool. I wish somebody would love me like that. Did you read the part about the robe and the ring? That's pretty cool too. Tammy had a son when she was pretty young. They had been abandoned by the boyfriend. And she was a young single mom trying to make ends meet, working as a waitress at a local coffee shop called the Coffee Kettle with two Ks. And a few months later, she showed up at the church office with Bob. Bob was a quiet guy who wanted to marry Tammy. And he promised to take care of her and adopt her son as his own. And he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a steady job, and he was a hard worker. And so I did their wedding. And 30-some years later, they're still together and doing well. And every year on their anniversary they post the same picture from their wedding. You can put that up. And they tag me and say, remember these kids. I haven't changed. <laughs> you can put up the next picture. Today, Tammy owns the coffee kettle. They still live in the same area, 
And her and Bob have four grown kids and six grandkids. And the little girl in this picture is the daughter of the little boy in the previous picture. Anyway, it's a great story. Have you ever read that story? You can take the picture down. I thought sure I'd be able to get through that without any problem. The parable of the prodigal son is quite possibly the most famous story in the Bible. And that's because it speaks to all of our hearts. It's about a willful wanderer. But most of us would just call them prodigals. There are many kinds of prodigals. We usually think of a young person. uh, But prodigals can be in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And it's not always their parents. They're leaving. Sometimes marriages, sometimes family, sometimes church, sometimes faith. And sometimes all the above. There are a few things that touch families as deeply and as painfully as prodigals do. There's probably not a family in our church that doesn't have a prodigal somewhere in either their immediate or their extended family. These wanderers are all around us. And it breaks our hearts. This was a hard sermon to put together because I was constantly wondering how these words would be heard and read and felt by those whose hearts are heavy for prodigals. In our church alone, I counted 15 families that have a prodigal, and that's immediate family. I can't begin to guess when you consider extended families. And part of the reason it's so hard is because there's not much you can do about it. And you feel helpless while you're waiting for a wanderer to come home. Luke 15 contains the story of the most famous wanderer in the Bible. So today I want to answer some important questions about what's really going on in uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. But before we get to the questions, we have to understand the context. You cannot understand Luke 15 without understanding the first few verses. If you miss those, you've generally missed the point and will likely just proof text the rest of the chapter. The whole key to this chapter hinges on who's in the crowd to hear three parables from Jesus. So we look at the beginning of Luke 15, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable. He told them. Question. Who's the them? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. When Jesus tells this parable, it's pointed directly at his critics the religious leaders, and the Bible scholars. Now, most scholars will tell you that the main point of the text is not based on the prodigal son, nor is it based on the loving father, but rather it's focused on the elder brother. And that's because the elder brother is being used to describe the Pharisees and the scribes, which means the prodigal son is not the main point of the parable. So even though this sermon is about the prodigal son, 
It's a secondary point in the text, and you need to know that. Back when I preached uh, through the Gospel of Luke in 2002 and 2003, I preached three sermons on this text, each one focusing on a different character. But you're not getting all three this time around. Just the one, focusing in on the prodigal son. A secondary point in the text, but still useful for understanding the gospel and God's love for the wanderer. So with that said, let's look at the parable, and I'm going to take us through a series of questions, starting with, why leave? Why leave? If you've got the sermon outline, that should be the first blank there. I was supposed to say, first blank, I'm supposed to keep my finger up. I've already forgotten. Anyway, why leave? Think about it. Who does this? Who gets up and walks away from their home, their family, and everything they know? Who leaves everything that protects and provides for them? What motivates them? What, why does a wanderer leave? There are some answers, not all the answers, but some right here in the story that Jesus tells. And that's because this story parallels countless others. Jesus recognized that, and so should we. The account of the prodigal son echoes a shocking number of real-life scenarios that, sadly, we've become much too familiar with. We start with verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. What sets these events in motion is a matter of the will, hence the willful wanderer. Individuals have the power to decide. You may not understand the willful wanderer because his decisions don't make sense. Her choices don't add up. You can't wrap your mind around his thought process. And usually when someone leaves, we try to figure out why. We want to be able to say, oh, now I understand. This happened and that happened and that resulted in this move. I don't agree, but I get it. And yet most of the time, that sort of clear insight doesn't come. Because willful wandering isn't just an intellectual process. It's a matter of the will. And at this point, the will is on autopilot. It's my life, it's my car, I'm driving, that's the way it is. And at the root of the willful wanderer's decision to leave is the issue of control. Who has control? They may be driving off a cliff, but they're in control. And that's what matters. And anything that threatens that control is a problem. And we can see that in the life of the prodigal son. And this parable gives us some control issues to consider. And the main one is authority. Because authority threatens control. Any authority threatens the person who demands to be in control. Notice how the parable begins, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And we need to recognize that both sons have a problem with authority. Now, John MacArthur has a book called The Tale of Two Sons, 
And Tim Keller has written The Prodigal God. And both of these excellent books focus on the second son, the rule-keeping son, who keeps the rules as a means of keeping control. And as I've said, it's the real point of the parable. But today we're focusing on the first son, the rule-breaking son, who breaks the rules as a means of keeping control. And who has just as much a problem uh, with authority as his elder brother. So why did the younger son leave? Was he spoiled? Was he too protected? We don't know. What we do know is that what he should have seen as a blessing, he saw as a burden. What he should have seen as provision and protection, living under his father's authority, he saw as a problem. Because it meant that he didn't have control. It's interesting how Jesus unfolds the story. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, what usually has to happen for you to receive an inheritance? The giver has to die. We've got a few people in here that do wills and execute wills and all that kind of stuff. Don't do a whole lot that, that for living people. Essentially, the younger son is saying, I wish you were dead. Just give it to me now. Surprisingly, the father goes along with it. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. Reminds me of the text the college kid uh, sent to his father. No mun, no fun, your son. So the father texted him back. Too bad, so sad. Your dad. See, that's my kind of thinking. Refusal seems obvious. Until you have to face off with someone determined to have a clash of wills. And what you'll quickly learn with a willful wanderer is that any assertion of authority makes things worse. Resistance simply pushes them farther away. The father may not have felt like he had any good options. His authority is what's viewed as the problem. Second, the son's proximity to the father is part of the problem because proximity threatens control. The last thing willful wanderers want is to be watched. They need to get away. They need to leave. They need some space between them and whatever threatens control. So we read verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Jesus says this young man went to a far country. He had to get away from the person who made the rules. He wanted some distance between him and them. But really, I think what he's trying to get away from is the rules themselves. To some degree, this is a declaration of independence, but it's also a demonstration of independence. See, in those days, one didn't get cash. They got property, and that property would have to be sold. And that's what the prodigal does. He packs his stuff, takes off, and disposes of the property. And the text says he squandered his property in reckless living. And reckless living means a no rules life. 
So why does he hate the rules? Probably a lot of reasons. One, it's a lack of faith. God has rules for your protection. If you don't believe you're being protected or you think you're being overly protected, then you're not trusting God's character and you'll come to resent the rules that you feel are intrusive and unneeded. Two, it's usually a lack of humility. Too much pride to admit you may be wrong. And three, it's a lack of self-control. You want control, you demand control, but as soon as you're given control, you tend to lose control over your own life. We might say your life begins to spin out of control. And that's what happens to the prodigal. Why leave? Leaving is almost always a control issue. Not always, but most of the time. So with that understanding, then we have to ask, why return? Why return? Verses 14 through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, as a pastor, I've heard the question far too often. When is she coming home? When will he figure it out? When will he call? When will she suddenly show up at the front door? And there's an answer for that question. But it has to be a gentle answer. Because it all depends on God's timing. And in God's time, he'll figure it out. In God's time, she'll show up. But usually God will use his or her circumstances to bring about the return. It's often the harsh circumstances of life which God uses to break the will of the wanderer. Not arguments, not evidence, not power plays or tearful appeals. I realize these are the hard words of this sermon. The willful wanderer will come home when the pig slop looks good. The car has to die. The money has to be gone. The relationship has to fail. The hammer has to fall. That's just the way it is. The crushing and merciless weight of reality is the most effective means to bring the willful wanderer home. And not before. So don't get between the hammer and the work. God has to do it. God has to bring that person to their knees. And you need to make sure you're not enabling some artificial sense of well-being when what they really need is for the train to come off the rails. And our text gives us some examples. If we look back at the text, we see the money is gone. Look at verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. His formerly full pockets are now empty. In the past, he would have turned to his family for help, but now he needs what he's already rejected. He needs what he's left behind. And he spent everything, the text says, and now there was a severe famine. The money had run out, the economy has crashed, his friends have left, and the only thing remaining is the lonely reality at the end of the road. And God has brought him to the end of himself. 
And so he gets a job. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out. You can almost hear the elder brother. You got a what? A job? You haven't worked a day in your life. But there is a harsh reality to entering the marketplace with no skills. And he's a foreigner in a far country. And a young man with no experience is not usually considered a good hire. And it shows. Jesus' explicit description of what happened must have made his Jewish hearers wince. Verse 15 goes on and says, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who set him into his fields to feed pigs. Literally says he glued himself to a Gentile as his servant. It's a horrible humiliation for a Jew. He becomes a day laborer, a field hand. His new master sent him out to feed pigs, unspeakable degradation for a Hebrew. He becomes a Jewish swine herd. And when Jesus got to this point of the story, there must have been a significant reaction from his audience of scribes and Pharisees. This boy is doing the unthinkable. And verse 16 frames the picture. It says, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Just a few months before, everybody loved him. They said he was cool. He was the rising star. And now no one would give him a husk to chew on. He had sought freedom and thought he found it. And now he's in virtual slavery. He's reached his breaking point. He's so hungry, he's willing to put his face in the filth to fill his belly. That's poverty up close and personal. And like so many before him, the willful wanderer is the fool who has nothing to fear until he falls. This is the rebel who never rests until he hits rock bottom. The reality of desperation cannot be ignored. The text says he was longing to be fed and no one gave him anything. The will of the willful wanderer has now been well and truly broken. But we have to ask, is it too late? Is there any hope for a person like this? Do you really think they can change? Will they ever come home? And the simple answer is yes. We've met some prodigals who've come back. Some of them are here this morning. Some of you don't like being reminded of where you once were. It takes real change. It takes real humility. It takes real repentance. They have to turn away from sin and turn towards God. So how does that happen? Why repent? Verses 17 to 20. Why repent? It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
The prodigal son is a case study in how God works. See, the process of repentance is often mysterious. It's worth listening to the prodigal's description of the turning moment. We may never get a closer glimpse of God at work in someone's life. And Jesus' story shows us how this happens. When we left the prodigal, he's knee-deep in pig slop. But then we read verse 17, but when he came to himself, that's the turning moment right there. It just happens. The light bulb goes on. The New American Standard uh, Version translates that when he came to his senses. The realization that life couldn't continue this way is both sudden and painful. And two things have to change for this kind of turning moment to happen. He has to realize that he's finally without means and without inclinations. As long as they still have the means, they're just going to try something else, probably something dumb. And as long as they still have the inclinations, meaning the desires and tendencies towards blatant sin, then they're still on the road. They still think they have some semblance of control. But when the means and the inclinations are finally gone, when their will is finally broken, there's a snap back to reality. And the willingness to repent will finally be there. But one word of caution. It's easy for us to react harshly with the willful wanderer. It's easy to just say, well, it's about time. But you don't slap blind people for not seeing. And prodigals can't see. They have blinded themselves. The arguments and the evidence aren't opening their eyes. They have to come to their senses. One such willful wanderer essentially wrote a song for prodigals. Perhaps you've heard it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's a song by a prodigal written for prodigals. However, repentance isn't merely a mental change. It's more than accepting reality as it really is. It means you actually have to change direction. Lots of people will say they're repentant, but they're unwilling to change. And that just means they're sorry, usually because they don't like the consequences of their behavior. But they're not really repentant because they haven't changed direction. But when they're truly repentant, when they can truly see, then they know where to go. Starting at verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. What he couldn't see is now obvious. He turns around and he steps away in a new direction. That's an important step. In 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul shows us how not to mistake regret for repentance. Writing to the church there, he said some really hard things to him, and he says, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you are grieved of the things that he told them, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt the godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And this young man gets it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's repentance. That's a humble admittance of his true condition. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. He isn't worthy. This kid deserves nothing. And he knows it. But as you know, I hope, God doesn't treat us as we deserve. And that's the amazing part of grace. But this prodigal, as with all prodigals, as with your prodigal, has to be wondering. (coughs) He has to be wondering, will they take me back? What kind of reception will I get? Does my father still love me? And so we read, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If the father in the parable represents God the father, then this is the only time in scripture we see God running. And he runs to the repentant sinner. He's been looking for this kid. He's been waiting for this kid. He's been scanning the horizon for this kid. He's been hoping and praying and planning for this day. And so it comes and his father saw him and felt compassion. The heart of the father reaches him long before his feet get there. He's walked home. His feet are covered in mud. His clothes are dirty. He smells like pigs. And his father ran and embraced him and kissed him. The question, does my father still love me, has now been answered. And now a question for the fathers and the mothers and the siblings And those who've been crying and those who've been angry and those who've given up waiting for your prodigal to come home. And that question is simply, why bother? Why bother? Verses 21 to 24, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So if we're going to take God's command to go get the wanderer seriously, then we better be prepared to follow God's lead in the reception we give to those who come home. There is a celebration. There's an embrace. There's forgiveness. The son starts in on his well-rehearsed speech, and the father doesn't answer him with words, but with actions, with an embrace and a kiss. The father is ready to give more than the son is ready to receive. The robe comes out, and the ring comes out, and the shoes come out, and the hungry son is given a feast, and we're given a picture of what the forgiveness of God looks like. Is that what our forgiveness looks like? (coughs) What should it look like? Notice the father 
runs to his son. He doesn't say, oh, look, it's my crazy idiot son who wasted my money. He probably wants more. That's not in the parable. The father, not yet knowing anything about the son's heart, not having any understanding of what's going on in his head, runs from his porch, falls on his son, kisses him, celebrates. The father does not make the son come to him and ask for forgiveness. He just gives it. It's assertive. It's aggressive. He goes after the son. He forgives before he knows anything about the son's repentance. Why is that important? Well, Jesus teaches us in Mark chapter 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It doesn't say, if you know you have something against somebody and that person comes and repents, then maybe you can give them another chance. No, it says, if you stand praying and you hold anything against anyone, forgive him right then and there. That's what this parable is illustrating. But often that's not how we work, is it? We say, well, she started it. If he wants to make it right, fine, I'll listen. Jesus says, no, you don't wait for them to do something. You forgive. Jesus tells you in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, if somebody has something against you, go and make it right. If you have something against somebody else, go and make it right. It's always your move. You always have to go. It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter who's to blame. Now, I know this has happened to practically every adult in the room. When someone you love has rejected you, it hurts. You don't want to make yourself vulnerable again. You don't want to open up to that person unless you're absolutely sure that person's changed. And then we come up against this parable. The father goes running to the son in order to forgive him, knowing he might get rejected again. He might be wronged again. He might be sinned against again. Still, he runs to his son. And I think Jesus is telling us something about himself. We're told in John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Unlike the father in the parable, Jesus didn't just lose face. He was stripped naked on a cross. He didn't just lose a little dignity. He lost his glory. He ran from heaven to earth, not knowing he might be rejected, but that he will be rejected. He will be killed. We were his enemies, and Christ came to us. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would uh, dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he do that for us? He's absorbing the debt. We sinned against God, but he doesn't stand on the porch and wait for us to get to him. He comes from heaven and, uh, to earth, and instead of inflicting pain, he absorbs it. Instead of making us pay for our sins, he takes them upon himself. 
And then look what he does, Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The father takes us back. That's amazing. Don't you wish you had a father like that? Don't you wish somebody would love you like that? Your prodigal has those same wishes. And they need your forgiveness. Just like Jesus gave you. Because you were once a prodigal too. Anyway, it's a great story. Have you ever read that story? You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to remember your grace for the undeserving and your forgiveness for the guilty. Sometimes we act as people who think that our sin is too great to overcome. Our wandering has taken us too far away, and we don't know what to do. Lord, if anyone here this morning is a prodigal, enable them to draw near to you so that you will draw near to them and they will repent and believe and come home. Lord, for those who are waiting, soften our hearts, calm our fears, build our trust that you are at work in the lives of our prodigals. Make us people who are quick to forgive. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from you to bring back the wanderer and draw us ever closer to the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and bring our prodigals back, more than back home, but back to the one who rejoices to receive them, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.